How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Novel. Before we begin... This series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be, how shall I say this, quite colourful. This programme contains strong language and descriptions of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised. There's quite a lot of me scolding people over feminism in the, in the logbooks. <laughs> There's also me being spectacularly naive. I mean, the most embarrassing one is me absolutely refusing to believe that something like a double-ended dildo could exist. I thought somebody was winding me up about its existence. And of course, within a decade, I was founding the first lesbian-run sex toy mail-order business in the UK, Thrilling Bits. But... That's my trajectory over that decade, was from, from this sort of stroppy feminist lesbian who had no clue about dildos in any way, shape or form to actually selling the damn things. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lisa Power. I'm a dyke who's been around for donkey's years, really. That's what I usually say. And I'm a serial interferer. I've known Lisa for quite a few years now, and I'm always bowled over by her relentless energy and dry wit. When we meet to record this interview, she has me laughing almost from the word go with some sharp quip or other. Lisa has been a campaigner for LGBTQ plus rights for decades. As she puts it, she's a serial interferer with a pretty long rebellious streak. But behind that rebellious streak is a remarkable flexibility, a willingness to move with the times. And I think you'll soon agree with me that Lisa's attitude is pretty brilliant. From the team at Novel, this is Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer trailblazers. I'm Sean Fay. In each episode, I'm talking to a different queer pioneer whose story teases out a nuance of our shared LGBTQ history. By telling these stories, we'll show the richness and wisdom of our queer community through the ages. And in each anecdote from the past, we'll find strength for the present day. In this episode, Lisa, Certified Legend. I was born on the south coast of England, but most of my childhood memories are a Waits estate in South Croydon. It was very suburban. It was very humdrum. 
and my mum was not wildly happy at being a housewife. She'd had quite an exciting life. She'd been a professional ballroom dancer and she'd been headhunted and gone over to Canada, then managed to get pregnant with me, so legged it back here for the early National Health Service and her partner had abandoned her as well. You've always seemed to me a quite confident adult. What kind of child were you? Were you a confident child or a shy child? Oh, I was a bumptious, horrible little child who got on much better with adults than I did with other children. I'd been brought up as the only child of an only child of an only child in my family. So a lot of focus from people, even though I only had one side of the family, a lot of interaction with adults. I was very bad at interacting with other children. I was not popular. I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was always someone who'd rather be reciting Shakespeare than getting into a scrap in the playground or something. And I just, I just failed to fit in and didn't hit my stride until I was in my late teens, early 20s, really. Do you remember when you first became aware of your sexuality? I can remember wanting to look at pictures of women with no clothes on at a very early age. And I only played doctors and nurses with other little girls, but I didn't put a name to it. It wasn't talked about. In the late 60s and early 70s, this code of silence was common. There were very few mainstream reference points for being gay or lesbian. But despite this, by the time she reached secondary school, Lisa had started to become more comfortable with her sexuality. I'd started to talk about being attracted to other girls in my last few weeks at school, and then I went to university and shot straight back into the closet out of sheer security, and I got engaged to a very sweet man who was a prop forward in in the rugby club. It was an incredibly stupid thing to do, and obviously I was deeply unhappy, and of course, eventually I did come out. In fact, I burst out rather than coming out. In the mid-1970s, Lisa was still presenting as a straight woman, but got more involved in queer campaigning. She started to join local gay rights groups at university. The groups were planning a protest outside the local branch of department store, British Home Stores, or BHS, after it had fired a gay member of staff. I went on this demonstration, still going, I'm an ally, I'm an ally. Somebody gave me their placard to hold while they went to the bathroom, and I didn't see the photographer from the local press. And the next thing I know, I'm on, I can't remember if it was the front page or the third page, but it was prominently in the local paper, (laughs) um, with a placard saying, BHS unfair to gays. That was it. I was out to the whole town. But, you know, honestly, it made life much easier. I don't think I'd have been suited to decades of agonising over whether to tell people. I am the sort of person who just blurts things out and you have to cope. Nowadays, people use social media a lot for coming out for that reason. They self-publicise so they don't have to have the conversation multiple times. So in the age before social media, I suppose you relied on the local press. (laughs) Could you paint a picture of what it was like, you know, after you came out, your university days, post-identifying as a lesbian? It was like I was a different person. And I started to make all these friends and get involved in all of these things and get politically involved almost immediately. I got stuck in and it did make a big difference to my personality. And that's so often the case when people come out that it frees up something in them that they didn't even know wasn't freed up in the first place. With this newfound freedom, Lisa entered into a rather strange summer. 
You see, the year Lisa came out in spectacular style coincided with an idea in feminist university groups to take up what's called political lesbianism. Political lesbianism was a movement in second-wave feminism where some feminists swore off relationships with men for political reasons rather than because they were actually attracted to women. And at Lancaster University, where Lisa was studying, the idea took off big time. It felt like all of the women on the straight left suddenly decided they had to be lesbians that summer. (laughs) And for some reason, of all the lesbians in Lancaster, I was apparently a particularly easy mark, somebody they felt comfortable trying (laughs) what it was like with. So I remember lying in bed with this perfectly nice, sincere woman leaning over me, gently stroking my breast and going, it doesn't feel at all strange. And I'm thinking, maybe not for you, lady. But the trouble was, I actually thought that I was a second-class lesbian because they were being lesbians out of pure politics, and I was being a lesbian out of lust. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I came to my senses later on and realised that I was the lesbian, and they were just having a little experiment. Nothing wrong with a little experiment. I always encourage people to experiment. But there were quite a lot of women in my early career as a lesbian who told me I wasn't a good lesbian, Um, but I seem to have survived most of them. I might not be a good one, but I'm still sticking at it. And funnily enough, this resilience in the face of criticism would come to stand Lisa in good stead in later life. That's coming up. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Lisa settled into her life for the rest of her time living and studying in Lancaster. Being a relatively small British city, the queer community was really tight-knit. In fact, 
everybody hung out with each other. We had one gay disco once a week at the Catholic club called Quack Disco, which I helped to run for a while. And literally everybody went there, the lesbians, the gay men, the transvestites and transsexuals. And in those days it was split between the two in Mm. in theory. And even the Hells Angels went, although the Hells Angels every now and again would feel their oats and try and start a fight with the gay men, at which point the lesbians would beat them up. (laughs) It was traditional. (laughs) And the lesbians always won. In 1979, Lisa moved back down to London to try out lesbian life in the big city. Once there, she found a much more complex queer scene. In the capital, everyone grouped themselves into different cohorts, different kinds of lesbians or gay men or activists. I was completely bewildered by the way that you were supposed to have multiple labels and things down here. And I remember somebody coming out of the Hemingford Arms one night A lovely man called Don, who isn't with us anymore, saying to me, I can't work out what kind of lesbian you are, Lisa. Are you a feminist lesbian? Are you a radical lesbian? Are you a socialist feminist? And I was just going, can I just be a feminist and a lesbian? You know, no more labels. It was for me quite bewildering that everybody split up so much in London. And I'd never been particularly good at separatism. But still, Lisa settled into a new bohemian lifestyle in the capital. I lived in short-life housing in Islington. It was so perfectly, you know, queer central in those days was living in a short-life house, which was a licensed squat in Islington. And one of my friends in the squat decided that he was going to apply to join Switchboard, and I went along for a laugh, not realising that all of the lesbians had walked out of all of the mixed 1970s organisations to found Lesbian Line, and Gay Switchboard was desperate to get lesbians back in. Switchboard was a helpline for gay people across the UK. Phones were manned by volunteers who offered advice and information to callers. They handled anything from emotional support on coming out to the opening times of the local gay bar. Lesbians had decided to leave Switchboard to set up a dedicated service for lesbian women. They felt women couldn't properly be served by Switchboard, But women were still calling the main line looking for help. And so Lisa decided to throw herself into life, manning the phones at Switchboard with all her might. And she ruffled a few feathers in the process. I was quite radical and I was very outspoken. And there were quite a lot of gay men on there who weren't used to stroppy dykes. When you were working on Switchboard, could you remember any particularly memorable calls or even a flavour of the sort of calls that you would take? The calls I remember are the ones from married women at two in the morning who'd sneaked downstairs just to hear another voice. They'd already rung and asked when a woman would be on the line. And they would call back and they would talk to me for half an hour and just whispering about how they were in love with the woman down the road. And they were waiting till their kids were 18 and went off to uni or got jobs and left before they ran away together. And the promise of a future life. Beyond these secretive midnight calls, Switchboard also offered an essential service to those coming to terms with their identity. It became a place where people could come out for the first time. The charity's logbooks, the record of all calls answered by Switchboard volunteers, are filled with stories like these. They remembered us better than we remembered them because we took so many calls. And I remember sitting on a beach in Lesbos in the late 80s with my girlfriend and the woman sitting next to me on the beach 
at Scarlet Eresu just turned to me and said, are you Lisa? And I went, yes. And she went, I came out to you last year on the phones at Switchboard. Wow. Here's my girlfriend. And I was just like, oh my God, that's what it's for. Alongside her work at Switchboard, Lisa became a prominent grassroots activist. She campaigned for women's rights. She helped set up a gay and lesbian newspaper called The Pink Paper. And she lobbied for government to finally help the activist groups leading the fight against the biggest spectre in the queer community. Working on Switchboard, when did you first start getting calls that were about AIDS? And what was the reaction like um, among the volunteers? Well, we started getting calls before it had a name. And it was called lots of things before it became AIDS and now HIV. I was there right from the start of those calls, people who'd heard about this strange thing in America. The first few years were an absolute stumble. I mean, we were hearing about it in 81, 82, but the government didn't do anything about it until 85, 86, 87. And during that time, we were sucking up every piece of knowledge we could. So it was a very tumultuous time. It was a very scary time. And of course, volunteers started dying. Yeah. And they were ashamed of what they were dying of and they were scared of it. So they, it wasn't named mostly what was going on. I can remember a volunteer ringing me up. I was on the morning shift and he just rang me up and said, I can't come in for my shift later today because I've lost my sight this morning. It was an awful time, one marked by the absence of the people who died and etched on the memories of those who lived through it who threw themselves into campaigning for change or just providing information to terrified people on the switchboard phone lines, like Lisa did. And so, when the UK Conservative government decided to introduce anti-gay legislation in the late 1980s, communities that had rallied around the AIDS crisis hoped they would be strong enough to fight back. This plight of individual boys and girls which worries me most. Too often, our children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. The law, called Section 28, was trying to stop public bodies, like schools and local councils, from promoting homosexuality, which was portrayed as a dangerous lifestyle. We thought if we marched often enough with enough people and shouted loud enough that we could stop it and everybody would see what an awful thing it was, which was unbelievably naive of us because the government had a walloping huge majority. Section 28 was passed in 1988 and remained in law in England until 2003. It created a new code of silence around queer identities and a suspicious, hostile environment for people like Lisa. I can remember at that time being quite nervous about going on weekends away in the UK with my girlfriend and we would walk into a hotel and they'd try and give us twin beds and we'd go, no, we'd like a double, thank you. And just holding our breath to see if they'd throw us out or not. This setback didn't deter Lisa from her rebellious nature. 
She'd by now spent over a decade as a grassroots campaigner and volunteer, and she was about to become involved in the founding of the most significant LGBT organisation in British history. But like with her first shift at Switchboard, Lisa's role there came about almost accidentally. The initial group of founders was made up of gay men. When Section 28 was absolutely happening, they, they went to Ian McKellen's for lunch one day and they all got a bit pissed. And instead of being traditional gays and sitting around the piano and singing show tunes, they sat around a typewriter and Duncan Campbell typed up a little manifesto. And that is the formal founding of Stonewall. But thank God, people like Michael Cashman said, we need lesbians. We can't do this without lesbians. I was just lucky I slid in under the wire and they didn't realise what an argumentative cow I was till I was already in there. Stonewall was a broad coalition between grassroots campaigners like Lisa and then stars of stage and screen like Ian McKellen and Michael Cashman, who I spoke to in the first series of this podcast. It set out to lobby for equal rights for gay, lesbian and bisexual people in the UK. There were clashes, there were arguments, there were strategy arguments until we hammered out the basic principle that it was equality. And people like me, equality was a first step. I wanted liberation, not equality. Mm. But I accepted that what glued that group together was equality and the principle of equality helped us say what we stood for so that if straight people had it, we should have it too. Stonewall went on to become the largest gay rights organisation in Europe. It supported legal challenges on queer issues and lobbied politicians to introduce important laws, improving life for gay people. Much of its purpose was about working with people in power to make change rather than just rallying against them. But it wasn't all plain sailing. I left Stonewall for quite a long time and I fell out very badly with Stonewall. First of all, bizarrely, over the equal marriage legislation, I got absolutely infuriated that for a while there was a chief executive of Stonewall who actually said lesbians don't want marriage equality, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they should bloody abolish marriage for everyone. Um, and I've never wanted to get married, but it was the principle again of equality. And then... I was equally unhappy at their attitude to trans people and the fact that they refused to add in the tea for a while. And that was really bizarre because they'd been pro-bi at an early stage and there were loads of trans LGB people who had helped out at various points. Some of the founding members of Stonewall didn't want to advocate for trans rights as part of the organisation. Trans campaigners began to protest at Stonewall Awards ceremonies when individuals who had made transphobic comments received nominations. Eventually, in 2015, Stonewall finally committed to becoming fully trans-inclusive, adding the rights of trans people in the UK to their remit. And these days, Lisa believes Stonewall is back on track. I don't have any kind of formal role with Stonewall, but I'm glad I have a very good relationship with it now and I do stick up for it quite a lot. Mm. I think the current movement is fascinating and brilliant and, yes, there are loads of labels and they're incredibly confusing and I cheerfully don't understand some of them, but frankly, it's none of my bloody business. We're all queer together and I feel so much better about that. 
to be able to explore, to be able to accept fluidity is so much better than all the way that tortuously people tried to shoehorn themselves into lesbian and gay in the 80s. And all those callers to Switchboard who couldn't quite make it to be pure, to be, you know, a gold star lesbian, as the awful phrase goes. Stonewall is a huge part of Lisa's legacy, but it's just one citation on a pretty hefty CV of campaigning and activism. Back in January 1991, when Stonewall was just beginning, Lisa became the first openly gay person to speak at the United Nations when applying for funding as a chair of the International Lesbian and Gay Association. We knew that there were lots and lots of homophobic people there because other organisations had spoken about lesbian and gay issues on our behalf and got a really bad reception. So this was the first time we went and we knew that we were not going to win. We knew we would not get through, but it was dipping a toe in the water, finding out who our allies were and weren't. And it was incredibly fascinating because I was there for two weeks. It was during the first Gulf War, so it was a hell of a time at the UN. And one of the people on the committee deciding on our fate was actually the representative of Iraq. Somebody just made the crack that he was in quite enough trouble already. He didn't need the gays as well. For the landmark moment where she stood up to speak, Lisa was determined not to compromise her values. And in this instance, that meant wearing trousers. They said, well, no, you have to wear a skirt. You have to look like a woman. I said, well... The ambassador from the Philippines is over there. She's in trousers. And they went, yes, but that's her national costume. And I went, I'm a lesbian. This is my national costume. Lisa didn't get the funding, but it didn't dampen her desire for change. She put her name to a number of causes over the years, including the Terence Higgins Trust, an HIV charity, and later the Community Advisory Board for London Pride. And alongside activism, Lisa had a host of quirky side projects to keep her sane, that mail-order sex toy service being just one of them. She even tried her hand at being a band tour manager. And throughout her life of refusing to compromise, Lisa maintained the support of her mother. For every rebellious moment in her daughter, Lisa's mum barely whispered a word of protest. Except, that is, in 2011, when Lisa was nominated for an MBE an honour from the British royal family for her campaigning and charity work. I rang her up and I said, look, you know, I, I don't think I want to take this. And she just went, you will take this. All my life I've put up with you not getting straight married, not being at your graduation ceremony for me to be proud of you. And she just ran through this string of things that I had walked away from because I lived an alternate lifestyle, as we would have said then. And she said, and this time, you will let me have this. I want to go to the palace. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took her to the palace with her husband and my best gay friend. And I was so glad I'd taken my best gay friend, totally apart from the fact that he was my friend, because he schmoozed the palace gays and he got my mother into the front row. And when she was younger, she'd been a professional ballroom dancer and she'd done court etiquette classes. So she sat there critiquing all of the curtsies out of the side of her mouth to him and having a great time. It was just so funny, but she was so proud of me and it was something I didn't give a shit about, but it made her so happy. And I'm kind of really pleased that I was able to give her that in a weird way. And I was quite happy to compromise my own beliefs to do it because she hadn't asked for much over my entire life. She put up with me being a complete pain in the arse in multiple ways. 
But even in this moment, Lisa couldn't resist a tiny bit of rebellion. I'd fiddled with the citation. It had originally just said for services to health. I changed it to services to the LGBT community and sexual health. Of course, they're the palace. They don't do acronyms. So as I came forward to get it, and Charles was starting to pin it on my jacket, the whole thing boomed out. My mother said you could have heard a pin drop when it happened. It said, for services to the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender communities. And Charles actually stopped. He actually froze, listened to it and beamed down at me and went, and which division are you, my dear? <laughs> <laughs> I think the general trajectory there, I think, is that you've gone from like being a grassroots campaigner involved in group activism to now being, you know, quite a prominent seasoned activist with a sort of like degree of like, you know, public profile and recognition. How does it feel to have to have evolved into that? Does it strike you as strange sometimes? It feels completely bizarre that people know me who I don't know. And people who've known me a long time who just go, Blimey, you know, because I have survived a lot of bad reputations and a lot of trouble. One of my messages to people is hang around long enough and you stop being a sinner and people start trying to make you into a saint. But I'm not having it. I am not a saint. In recent years, Lisa's attention has shifted to focus on the importance of documenting much of the unheard LGBTQ plus history she has lived through. She's now a trustee of Queer Britain, a new museum which opened in London in spring 2022. It's been five years or more in the making, and that's absolutely right. Uh, and it's spent those years not just raising money and making relationships in the museum world, but also ensuring that it's reached out and listened to trans people, to people from a variety of uh, ethnicities, to younger people, I should confess that my degree is in medieval history, <laughs> which is all storytelling, but I am a historian by trade. I realised in the 90s that we were losing, I mean, we were losing people to AIDS at that point who had amazing stories to tell. If we don't read our history, if we don't learn our history, if we don't preserve our history, it's amazing how fast the lessons come around and I the absolute example of that is knowing what really happened with section 28 as opposed to the myths and how that reads into or doesn't read into the persecution of trans people in the 2020s and the 2010s. I'm not one of the people of my generation who thinks that we should all go back to how it was in the 80s because I remember in the 80s being really really uncomfortable with mostly older gay men but a few older lesbians who thought it was all much better when we were underground. And people get used to their oppression and get used to their captivity and you never should and you should never stop fighting and you should never stop questioning. And so when it comes to offering advice to her younger self, Lisa flatly refuses. I don't know what I would say to myself because I wasn't great at listening to people. When I was younger, I'm not sure I'd listen to myself. And I'm not sure that that's a problem. And I'm sure many of us can remember when we were in our teens and 20s thinking, Jesus, my grandparents just don't get it. You know, why are they such old fogies? Why do they think everything should be like when they were my age? Well, some of the people 
that I hung out with in the 80s have turned into our grandparents. And I don't need to tell myself that it'll be all right because I was horrendously, underneath it all, horrendously cocksure. I used to say I was born with a bit missing, and I don't think it is that, but that was the easy way to describe that I could feel nervous, but I never felt that I was wrong in the sense of that loving women was wrong. So, no, I don't want to write a letter to my younger self, but I wouldn't mind reading something I wrote when I was younger to me now. I might learn a few things. Call Me Mother is hosted by me, Sean Fay, with production from Pippa Smith. Rosie Collier, Sean Glynn, and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Research by Megan Oyinka. Production management from Cherie Houston and Charlotte Wolfe. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Maithili Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Pippa Smith and Nicholas Alexander. Our theme music is composed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Lee Meyer, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Schenkman, and all the team at UTA. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.